Hi, everybody. We're back at Dorothy's Place at Solidarity Hall. And we are doing, I think, the first podcast conversation with a novelist we've ever done. I don't know why this took so long, but, you know, that's kind of like something we should have been doing. And so our guest is Cadwell Turnbull, a very interesting guy, uh, a friend of friends, as they say in the mafia. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, Nathan Schneider uh, tipped me off to to uh, uh, Cadwell's work. And the work uh, we're going to get to in a minute is called The Lesson, which is a kind of a genre-bending, mind-bending science fiction book. Um, but I wanted to give uh, Cadwell, first of all, welcome. Hey, hey, thank you for having me. And uh, you have an interesting background. I wanted, I wanted to give you a chance to tell us what it's like uh, being an islander you know, this whole island thing, I don't, I don't quite understand that. And, and just a little bit about your background and uh, the way you came up in the world. All right. Um, so, so I'm from the Virgin Islands. Um, I grew up in St. Thomas. I actually wasn't born there. My mom and my dad met while um, my mom was working in D.C. and my dad was in the military huh. um, based up here. Um, they're both from, they both grew up in on St. Thomas as well. So they met however they met and they, you know, struck up a romance. And then maybe, maybe a couple months when I was a couple months old, I was sent back home and I lived with my grandmother for a while. And then my mom came back and um, spent the rest of my, my um, young life living on St. Thomas. Huh. And so I was born in Chevy Chase, Maryland, but I, I don't remember anything about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, when you tell people about your childhood and, and, and growing up there, what, what do you tell people in order to explain how different your life there was compared to some teenager in Chevy Chase, Maryland? Right. I don't know. When you're growing up in a place, the, you, um, you kind of take for granted the things of mm-hmm. that place. It's normal for you. And so going to the beach on Sunday afternoons was like a normal thing. And it was easy like to get there. a great beach, not like an ordinary beach, right? <laughs> yeah, like like a beach with clear water. Yeah, yeah. Um, the water is warm. It's clear. Sometimes it's fishing it. You know, like it's, wow. you know. And so, and this is normal, like having barbecues on the beach. Yeah. For people's birthdays. Um, cool. <clears throat> and it's just really being very accessible and normal. And um yeah, and and the fact that St. Thomas, I mean, other islands are much bigger than ours, but it's like you know, thirty-two square miles. It's it's not oh. a big island, yeah. and so you can you can drive from one end to the next in in an hour or under. Mm-hmm. And so, I feel like one of the things I noticed when I came to the states was just a difference in scale, like being able to get on the road and just drive and drive and uh, drive yeah, and drive, right? right. And um, mm-hmm. everything just seemed really long. Like all drives seemed really long. It seemed like it took forever to get anywhere. Huh. And so that was one of the things that I noticed immediately. Um, <clears throat> another thing is the sun. So, so it's always warm back home. Um, and if the sun is out, it's hot. It's breezy since we're um, on the, in the Caribbean Sea. And so you get a lot of wind, but it's usually hot. Even, in, even around Christmas time, it's pretty warm. Um, and I remember the first time when I when I went to school as an undergrad, 
and I was in Pittsburgh and it was winter time. And I looked outside and I saw that it was, the sun was out and there was like no clouds in the sky. It was bright. And so I walked outside thinking, oh, it'll be warm today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh And it was, and it was, it was really cold. And I had to go back inside and put on some more layers. And it's one of those things that like, if I thought about it, if I said and thought about it, I would have been like, yeah, of course it's not warm outside, but because you, because I'm used to looking outside and seeing the sun and thinking, oh, this is a hot day. Yeah. I went outside treating it as such. And I was, you know, greatly mistaken. Right. Right. A little yeah. adjustment. Got to make a little adjustment right. there. Yeah. Right. Um, did you grow up in what people would call a bookish family? Um, no. Nah. you in the literature? <laughs> nah. Um, I had an aunt who would have us read, um, like she had like um, a, a shelf full of books and some of them were like, you know, really old classic books. And she would make us read them when we were over by her, me and my sister. And so you had no choice. There wasn't, we couldn't watch TV. So we had to read. Um, I didn't really enjoy that much. Like we were reading things like Gulliver's Travels and mm-hmm. which is fine. It's just a little, you know, it's, it's a little old. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was school because I, I grew up watching a lot of TV and film and I'm really, I'm really into TV and film. And that's probably where I got the speculative interest in um, from. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think being in school and having to read um, um, books, I think is what one of the reasons why I got interested in writing mm-hmm. um, and specifically speculative fiction. I, I, when we, when we had to read books, that was science fiction or fantastical in premise. I enjoyed those books more. Mm-hmm. And so I read more of those. <clears throat> I finished more of those books. And, and so that, I think that was the reason why. Well, was there much of a conscious choice involved in writing a science fiction novel uh, like you could have done some other genre? Or did you, were you pretty much pointed at this kind of like all along? Is this like, logically where you figured you would go in terms of that choice? No. Um, At first, so the first book that I tried to write, I didn't, I never finished it, um, was a urban fiction book. I don't know if you, you know the genre. It's kind of, um, I would describe it as um, black 20 something year olds dating (laughs) their dating lives. Um, (laughs) And no, so, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. right. so writing it as a teenager and imagining what um, <laughs> black adults would <laughs> would do with their, you know, that time when they weren't at work. And the, the novel that I was writing, I don't think anybody in the novel actually had a job. I don't think I spent any time mm-hmm. trying to think about what they were actually doing when yeah. they were, when they weren't dating. Um, but and and I got I got the idea to write that because I was when I was in my free time, my sister had a lot of um, urban fiction books and I would read them and I got into them because they were the books that were around. So, you know, it was one of those stories again, whatever was around, I picked it up. And, um, and it was one of the only, um, it was the only examples that I found of like, you know, people that look like me in fiction doing things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So naturally I gravitated to that as something that I might write. But once I started getting into science fiction, um, my, the first book that I remember that really like clicked for me was um, 1984 huh. by George Orwell. Huh. 
And um, I like that book so much. And I, and I liked Brave New World as well. Um, mm-hmm. And once I got into undergrad, I started reading, you know, Ursula Le Guin and eventually mm-hmm. started reading Octavia Butler, you know, the um, science fiction writers, science fiction fantasy writers. And so <clears throat> once I started doing that, that's when I started getting that idea to write um, fantastical fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, the first book that I wrote then was fantasy. And it, it took me a while to actually get over to science fiction. Huh. Huh. Well, let's get to uh, the lesson, which I found a very, um, a very fascinating book because it was constantly sort of surprising me. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was uh, kind of cool about it, uh, one of the things was that I, I had no idea where you're going. I, I really, some people, get, science fiction people, which is not exactly me, I haven't read a lot, but I, I think they must enjoy kind of plotting out ahead of the writer a little bit where this is likely to go and they can kind of almost see it coming. No, uh-uh. I was like, because <laughs> um, the thing kept unfolding, you know, sort of chapter by chapter in different ways, which I thought was very, um, very, very well done. But, you know, I, thank you. It's, it's a, your reviewers say it is a kind of a, you know, post-colonial kind of um, a metaphor and and I think when when uh, you and Nathan were talking uh, in your conversation on YouTube, um, you you uh, or rather he suggested that you weren't really doing that. This is not a kind of formulaic thing. So you play with these themes of colonialism, but you're also doing other things. There's a lot kind of bumping around inside there, um, so that the the alien um, the alien people that arrive. Uh, on this Caribbean island, um, there's this very kind of un- unexpected way in which they are uh, interesting. There's a sort of fascination of the other, which sounds kind of like a colonial kind of dynamic, you know. But they they land first of all. They land in a blue white seashell of a ship. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've done their homework. <laughs> right, right. Or something. So. Uh, Talk a little bit about how you got this thing launched and so on. Yeah. Um, so some people, when they read the reviews of the book, expect to go into it and see like a, a really clear colonial message. Like it's, it's doing, yeah. like it's, a, it's an allegory. And yeah. I, I was trying very hard to not make it one-to-one. It's not, the, the Ina are not stand-ins for, Mm-hmm. America or any European power, they are their own thing. Mm-hmm. And it brings up different things in different people. So um, depending on the perspective that I'm following in the novel, um, people are relating the Ina to their their religion, their sexuality, um, their relationships, their um, violence. Um, there's all of these different ways that the Ina um, are meaningful to different individuals within the story. And so it was definitely something that was inspired by me thinking about colonialism, but not meant to be mm-hmm. <clears throat> mapped onto that completely. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it takes a while to kind of sink in kind of where this is all headed. I mean, they arrive saying um, that there's this, like, there's a kind of a build up to this moment when suddenly these craft arrive in the sky. And we learn that they come promising medicine and technology 
mm-hmm. and they're on some sort of research mission, and and then they're on television <laughs> with the American president. Mm-hmm. So so we're wondering, really? And is this you know is this benign or is something else getting ready to happen? And we quickly figure out something else is getting ready to happen. Right. And the way I was thinking about it was that for at least for the Ina, the Ina. Ina wanted something, but you know, not getting into too many spoilers. But yeah. they, their intentions are not um, unambiguously evil. They're not. Mm-hmm. They don't have any plans to take over the world. They don't. They're the the interest that they have in the planet is personal. It's not. Is not meant to. They're not aiming to subjugate. Basically, yeah. yeah. But it kind of happens by accident, and it's exploring that how they how they, um, in the way that they behave, their culture, how that oppresses the people that they're directly in contact with, which is the people in the Virgin Islands. I mean, it's really kind of, uh, it was kind of mind-blowing to me that there is a love relationship. The one I'm thinking about is uh, Derek and, and uh, Mira. Mm-hmm. And you keep thinking, how, this, how can this be a love relationship? What, this is an alien. And, then, and yet she has this humanity uh, despite right. having had several lifetimes, I'll, I'll try not to go too far. Right. But but there seems to be uh, there's even an erotic interest, and the reader's thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I did not invent that. That's that's a very common um, science yeah, yeah. fiction For alien sure. trope. The, the, the yeah, the, the human right. relationship with an alien thing. Right. But um, it is something that. I was interested in, um, especially from Mary's perspective, being on the planet for so long and having to learn to, to blend in with humanity. And so she, in mm. some ways, she sees herself as an Ina and a human. And so yeah. her yeah. relationship with Derek is um, igniting that human part of herself. And it's, um, I found that as something interesting to explore. And for Derek, I feel like because she presents as human, it's easy for him to or it's easier for him to um, to feel that attraction that a human would have for another human. But I don't know. I I think it could have, I think it could have happened even if she didn't look like a human because they their connect the connection is deeper than <clears throat> just appearances. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting that it seems to me um, my idea about the the way the book kind of um, sort of leaks out little scenes, little moments without any kind of elaborate setup, it, this is not Isaac Asimov. You're not, you're not trying to create some kind of a blueprint and carefully pull the reader through the way this all works. We, we really have to kind of discover it and then almost by accident, right? Like the mm-hmm. scene where Mira is talking to this figure, this kind of amazing figure, Ohoim. Mm-hmm. The, this guy, you say he's lived thousands of years, um, and as there's a conversation <laughs> between him and Mira, y- you let out that he has tentacles, like, whoa. Um, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And, and then he, and this I thought was kind of amazing. He is reminiscing with Mira about their homeland. And you have this whole little vignette of this homeland of Sa, this this thing that's not really in the novel, it's just sort of uh, recalled. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very striking that the Ina would be able to feel homesickness. 
Mm -hmm. And you kind of go off on that a little bit. So these, these worlds have sort of parallel worlds around them in a way. I thought that was kind of fascinating. Right. And they have a, they have a special word for homesickness that is specific to Ah, their home planet versus homesickness. That's specific to being like among their people. Um, And so Mm. I, I, I just thought it was, um, Something worth exploring because I'm interested in linguistics, yeah, you know, yeah. how language functions for people, how people connect using language. Well, it also really kind of deepens our sense of what the Ina must be about. They're, they're clearly not just robots. There's mm-hmm. something, something kind of reachable, you know, and at the same time, there's some other machinery. I, it's not quite machinery, but other stuff going on, like the reefs mm-hmm. and the whole kind of it's not exactly a technology but the the way the reefs interact with ina i mean a, a reef is a uh like a geophysical fact in the caribbean but in this book the reefs are this whole other thing yeah they're, they're sort of like really um really small living organisms that have formed this um symbiotic relationship with the ina and uh-huh. the ina used them to build ships and um, build their cities, their structures, but also regulate their body. It's one of the reasons why they're so long-lived, though they are just naturally long-lived as well. Um, Yeah, I just thought it was really, I thought it would be really cool to um, have have a bit of technology that's so intuitive to the Ina and that they, they they communicate with it on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. And they use it as weapons, but they also use it as um, building material. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of little touches like this um, that I, I think really pull the reader along to give a sense of, even though this is, this is speculative fiction, you know, iguanas show up in this novel. Mm-hmm. And also you mention, um, you have a reference to an Obeya woman. Not maybe not every reader will know what that's even about, but that's interesting and kind of locates it in a way. You know, my favorite kind of weird moment, can I tell you that was maybe it's kind of like unintentional humor, is when um, Mira's talking to the, she goes in to see the Ohuim, or, or maybe that's his name, I mean, and he's eating a meal and he, he's eating fried kingfish and Johnny cake. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, right, what? <laughs> right. This uh, this alien is eating what? Yeah, it's a bit of Ina tourism. They they like the okay. food. Okay, all right. They That's like cool. the they like the food at least. They don't yeah. necessarily like the people, but they do like the food. That was great. That was great. Yeah. Um. You you also have an interesting um. Sort of it's a, a kind of a plot twist about the research when Mira. Um activates and and you have a vocabulary kind of a sci-fi vocabulary the telomeras enzyme that she's been working on this is later in the book when she's in the struggle um and she takes out this other character and it's and you reveal that she's been taking their research and is now about to use it against a fellow eni to destroy him right Mm-hmm. So that was kind of that that kind of complicates her story, makes her a little more interesting in terms of her loyalties and so on, right? Right, right, and it's um it's a pretty big decision for her, and it's 
um, I tried to give the impression that this is the this is the first time that this has happened. Yeah, the, the Ina, you know, as a culture, they're very um, they're very connected to each other, um, and their violence is usually um, manifested outward. And so, what she's doing is like like a really big sin, you know, um, for the Ina, and and she's gonna have to you know experience repercussions for that. But I also wanted to have that moment reveal this big research secret that they've been looking at for so yep. long, but in a way that was, was doing something in the story and not just that someone sits in a room and says it. I wanted to explore it oh, through yeah. a scene, you know, have, have yeah. a bit of action happen. Yeah, it's action, all right. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. Um, also, you know, people were trying to figure out, I noticed some of your viewers were trying to figure out, so what's the lesson? Which, which lesson? You know, and there are multiple, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you, you know, here's, here's my thought. It looked like maybe one contender could be, um, I, is, it, is it Mira who says this about the universe uh, being bigger than you know and that no armor is big enough to save you? Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the lesson that she's learned. Um, yeah. Yeah, depending on the reviewer, uh, most reviewers that ask the question, well, what is the lesson usually ends up hating the book. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah if, they, if they feel like they haven't gotten that question answered, they're frustrated by it. But I think that at least what I was trying to do was um, have that be a theme in the book, that, this is, that these are things that... Um, conflict teaches you things and those things are different according to different people. And that even, even though the Ina believe they're teaching some kind of lesson, which I think is um, hmm. guard yourself. If, you know, if you want to make it, you know, at, you know, reduce it to it's very, it's most simple um, terms. They're saying to guard yourself, protect yourself from the universe, which means protect yourself from everything else. Mm-hmm. Um even though they think that they're, they're, they're sending that message or they're teaching that lesson, um, people are interpreting it differently. They're, having, they're learning something that the Ina are not intending. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when the Ina are, the, I, would think, I would say the secondary lesson is also don't mess with us. You yeah. know, it's very simple. Yeah. Um, we, our will is strong. That's, all, you know, that's what they're trying to say. Yeah. <clears throat> it doesn't really it doesn't really translate to humanity in the way that they think it will. You know, mm-hmm. some people take their acts of aggression as, you know, as threat and they plan to um, return that favor. And um, it's something that I think to some degree surprised Ina and it, it inevitably leads to this, you know, this big conflict that the book is like building mm-hmm. up towards. Mm-hmm. Is there is there something about the the uh, ideal that the Enoch are pursuing that um, you know feels a little bit totalitarian? It feels like uh, there's some imperial or bigger scheme in there somewhere, or maybe I'm overinterpreting. I mean, since we, um, <laughs> I, I can I can talk about this um, yeah, in my own head because I, I don't. Right? Right. I don't think it's in the book, but in okay. my head, um, the Ina don't have any larger scheme 
other than to be impervious to the universe. Huh. So their goal, their ultimate goal is to be so strong, nothing can kill them. Yeah, yeah. That does kind of come through. That does come through. And they they don't want to do anything with that. (laughs) You know, it's not, their goals are to just be that. It's it's near religious for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. That's a little bit mystifying, but it also I think uh, keeps the reader, you know, working on it, trying to figure out what what is it really that they're mm-hmm. about. Um, so that's all. That is all good. Um, by the way, I just saw that you may be looking at um, some kind of a TV adaptation. Yeah, um, that actually happened. That happened pretty early on, um, okay. about the same time when I was getting, um, when I was um, going through the process of signing to the publisher. <clears throat> I also got some interest. The manuscript got some interest from um, a couple places and ended up, um, AMC ended up optioning cool. the novel. But I don't know, you mm-hmm. know, these things develop or they don't in their own time. Yeah. 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 You know, um, I um I want to come back to the subject of speculative fiction maybe at another time with one of these workshop things that Solidarity Hall is getting ready to create, I hope, mm-hmm. where we get a couple of people on a video call and we kind of talk through a, a topic. And the idea, I think I mentioned to you, economic science fiction, right. which is kind of what we're talking about, isn't it, um, is uh, something I'd like to explore because you know, there is the sense in which our economy discourages uh, any kind of new social imaginary quasi-utopian thoughts and all the rest of it. And there is a movement, I guess it's big enough now to be a movement, mostly in the UK, around utopia as method, as a way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um and there's even a particular flavor of utopia, which is really addressed to a kind of a practical aspiration. It's not all kind of hazy uh, stuff. Right, so yes. um, this, this feels like something kind of akin to where you might want to go in thoughts of media. Uh, you and Nathan were talking about this a little bit. The, sort of the principles of cooperativism applied to a media ecology you know give me a little more of your thought on that how might that work so i've been thinking about this for a while um it's interesting to hear you talk about what your name what you what you would call this type of fiction economic um economic science fiction um i've called it sometimes solidarity fiction or solidarity science fiction or you know um and i've you know been trying to or social science fiction trying to figure out what is a good catchy name for this? But um, the way that I see it in terms of adding um, cooperativism to media, it's both ways. It's, it's an output and input. So um, cooperative systems for media. So having media co-ops, um, fiction co-ops, where um, there's multiple people working on a project together and they're doing it cooperatively. It's co-owned and co-governed. And I've been working on a project like that, just, just recently launched it. Um, and also writing more about co-ops, writing more about um, alternative um, 
economic practices and mm-hmm. being, being intentional about that and, and anchoring it in something that feels real and um, something that people can find accessible and gravitate towards. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, um, the cooperative story and the sort of ethos around it um, I've never been a member of a cooperative. I've been interested in Mondragon for a while. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading some interviews with Mondragon employees and trying to get a sense of kind of what is so distinctive about this. And <clears throat> the first thing people find out, I guess, with a co-op is that it's a certain amount of work and education to wrap you around the, your, your head around the fact that you're not just an employee. Right, yes. So there's that whole thing, but it's not so well explained or portrayed that the other thing that happens is you really do become an owner and you, you know, I mean, the vision here ultimately kind of the most philosophical sense is that you become a larger person. Mm -hmm. You're empowered. You know, you're not, you're no longer, you know, lacking in so many ways, you're, you know, you have the ability, um, you have a, a, a certain stability in the world that most workers, they're nowhere near it. Exactly. Yeah. And control, you yeah. know, stability and um, um, agency. Yeah. Which is a thing that I, I particularly get really excited about, especially thinking about it through the lens of um, um, growing up in the Virgin Islands. Um, I think that there's a way that, um, 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 economic democracy would be really useful for places like the Virgin Islands, places in the Caribbean hmm. that um, that need to have those kind of strong systems in place, especially as the climate changes, um, <clears throat> that they can build for themselves the systems that they need to protect themselves from the changing climate because no one else is going to do it for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just get, I get really excited about it's um, it's implications for, for community um, and how cooperatives can have relationships with each other and form organizations around their cooperative practice. Yep. Yep. That's good. Have you heard this term of post-traumatic growth? No. This is Rebecca Solnit, you know, the lady that wrote uh, that amazing book, Paradise Built in Hell. And it's about, you know, post-disaster community building. Oh, okay. She goes goes all the way back to the San Francisco earthquake and all the way up through 9-11 and Katrina. It's a fantastic book because she's taking chapter by chapter these episodes that, you know, different, different outcomes happen. But what they have in common is that generally a new community merges Mm -hmm. in response. And sometimes these communities stick around. So she's very interested in the dynamics of that. Um, And it seems like, you know, cooperativism, um, in a way, is like an economic response to disaster, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if, If you get the power of uh, solidarity <clears throat> in the workplace, you'll probably get it in politics too. Right. And absolutely yeah. back and forth. So it's a yeah. big cultural thing we're talking about. I need to read that book. Um, I wrote a short story 
that was about this was about um, the Virgin Islands after a, a really bad hurricane huh. kind of rallying together. Yep. And because, you know, the hurricanes are getting worse, building this society of solidarity and using it to help them prepare, like investing a lot of the money that they're making through tourism and all these other ventures and putting it towards disaster preparedness before yep. and after. and um it's just it's something that i i wrote it i wrote it partly to tell that story but also like to i was you know hoping that it would inspire movement in that direction because i think that it's something that we're going to need yeah 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 in fact i was thinking of saying uh because the fact we're recording this um on the date after uh flights from europe being suspended right yeah uh we seem to be in the middle of uh an unfolding disaster right now so this this may all get like amazingly relevant very soon absolutely (laughs) you know yes which is not the ideal thing but unfortunately it's it's historically like the typical thing you know Mm -hmm. right um so so part of what solidarity hall would like to do is and, and we like to partner with groups like Shareable. Uh, Shareable has a thing called Resilience Hubs. And really, they're just community spaces where people agree to meet up and they look at their neighborhood. And they try to figure out what do we need. And it might be a social care thing or it might be we need a new business. How, you know, taxi service. How come we don't have taxi service around here? And so we farm a co-op. Um, after having gone through that analysis and that initial kind of team building or solidarity building. Um, and so this is the way it used to work. You know, through uh, Jessica Nimhart's book, I, I found out how much this was true in, uh, you know, black communities going way, mm-hmm. way back. And it's true in, mo- in many communities, you know, uh, particularly that just had a strong sense of, identity and solidarity, uh, they did it themselves. Right. Uh, often, often without any of the, um, the, the academic knowledge of the yep. movement, yep. you know, they, they, they did it because they had to, and they came up with their own systems based on, you know, what was necessary at the time, which was very surprising. I also, I have her book on my shelf and, um, it was, it's really cool to read and see how, how far this stretches back and yeah. how early people were talking about it. Yeah. And it's kind of, um, I, I can see it having a resurgence now. You know, people are talking about it, especially in African-American communities. And yeah. It's just, you know, it's really exciting. Yeah, agreed. I, I, I did not know much of this history. I'm, I live near Chicago, and Chicago has a neighborhood called Bronzeville. And, and... You know, aside from Bronzeville, there's there's obviously Harlem. There's mm-hmm. also in D.C. I want to say it's Anacostia. Maybe I'm not sure exactly what is the historical uh, African American neighborhood there. But the amount of <clears throat> sort of uh, uh, independent sustainability they had and their own institutions through really through the the crash through the depression is when everything kind of blew up and 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 began to fall away but there was a period there and you read about this and you think this is it man they they were not dependent on anything 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, it's 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 like uh, you know Barcelona or, <laughs> or Rojava or these these um, areas of the world where people have gotten self organized in powerful ways and and very inclusive um, and just do their best to try to withhold all the forces that want to um, overwhelm them and disable them, you know? Right. It's, it's remarkable and also um, sad because, you know, you just mentioned a bunch of these different communities and there's like active pressure from the outside to, yep. Yep. to, to, to stamp that down when they, when it happens, yep. you know, this kind of um, internal resilience is not encouraged by the larger culture. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But I guess it's being rediscovered and now, you know, it's there's so much great work going on. Nathan is a guy, as you know, that's really been working on this for a while, mm-hmm. and his books yeah. and uh, are all about this. So there are many, many kind of hopeful signs on the horizon. So we, we simultaneously have this crisis, and then yet you look around the area and you say, "Wow, look at this great new stuff coming up!" You know, absolutely. Kind of a kind of a weird moment. What what's the next uh, the next big thing you're working on? Well, I'm actually working on a trilogy of novels. Wow! It's um it's contemporary fantasy, so it's in a different genre, and it's um it features um, cooperative heavily. There's a few co-ops in the in the in the first book that I'm currently revising, and I'm trying to over the course of those three books um, make the the cooperative. Um, stuff more and more prominent in the story so like i have this overarching plan of how the solidarity stuff fits into this this other narrative that i'm playing around with and it's part of it was me trying to figure out ways to incorporate cooperativism storytelling about cooperatives into things that people will read you know like um and so it's um the premise of the story is monsters. This is, these are monsters from Caribbean folklore and monsters from all over the world oh. and uh, monsters from popular culture, so werewolves and vampires and those sort of things. They, they've just come out of um, the shadows and they're advocating for their human rights. And there's all of this like oh. intersectional stuff with, with race and class and gender and sexuality and, wow. uh, um, and also co-ops. You know, this is the... <laughs> the, the um, a few of the main characters actually work at a cooperative bookstore. And so this is one of the first um, instances of me seeding this idea, but it's going to build up into more and more things as the, as the series goes on. Wow. Wow. That sounds very cool. Yeah. You know, I guess if we thought about it now, you, you would probably know better than I, cause I have not read a ton of science fiction, but I know at least in some of the better known older authors, there was always, always this kind of libertarian economics going on because there was a streak kind of a you know technophile streak in science fiction about uh the future uh, or else there was kind of a libertarian thing um you know uh, all institutions were bad and there's only the lonely i don't know kind of an ayn rand kind of hero uh that's at the center of the book you know that kind of thing Right. Um, I can see, I can see the argument that, you know, this was um, a threat in science fiction. It it definitely makes sense. Um, I think that part of it was 
um, this, I think part of it is the constraints of storytelling. Hmm. You know, you, I think that stories generally aren't good at depicting movements. Hmm. Um, and so you see a lot of stories where a protagonist has the right idea and they go out and they do some big thing that changes the world because stories t- tend to um, lend towards a single character as protagonist doing a thing. And that you um, you don't get a lot of really good movement fiction. Hmm. And, I, and it's one of the things that I'm interested in trying to have multiple perspectives on a thing. I did it with the lesson and I'm doing it with this, with this trilogy mm-hmm. as well. Um, to show how a community responds to a thing or how a community changes over time. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Right? And so I think some of that is just the constraints of, of genre or, or fiction generally. And some of that may have been ideological. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yep. I'm thinking you'd have to go back to maybe maybe the 30s is when popular novelists um, and, and some good novelists wrote with more of a kind of a movement mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort, sort of general um, enthusiasm for some form of socialism, communism, whatever it was. Clearly, the, the Depression had people reimagining things on a, on a big scale. And to differing degrees, probably, I, I can't quite name the writers I need here, but presumably, um, you know, the, the writers around uh, depression area, uh, era culture were certainly doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, two of my favorite writers are Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler. Yep. And they both, they both write about movement work. Um, ah, okay. Ursula Le Guin's oh, The Dispossessed oh. is hmm. about a, um, an anarchist um, hmm. an anarchist commune on the moon of a planet. Huh. Wow. And they, wow. And they, they branch out culturally from this planet, which they, they once lived on. And now they've been on the moon for, I think, 100 years, 150 years. Hmm. And um, they've, they've, changed remarkably, um, they've changed remarkably in that time. And then huh. Octavia Butler has um, hmm. fiction as well that explores community and community changing over time. I think the... Great. Sorry. No, that's good. Yeah. Uh, on our podcast, we drop book names like every five minutes. So right. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you listen, you need, you need a pen when you listen to one of our podcasts because there's going to be all right, these books right. flying around, which is all good. Cool. Cadwell, this has been great. Um, hey, I want to keep in touch with you and keep us uh, informed on the progress of your new projects. And um, I will look forward to uh, keeping in the loop on Salary Hall stuff. And I hope we can connect again. That's great. Thank you. Pleasure. We will be in touch. All right. Thank you. Peace.